This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. When you're tough on border, you're anti-cancel culture, you know what a woman is, are you sure you're a progressive left? Uh, you're not I, a secret Tory in disguise, eh? I, I, I'm an, an absolutely uh, consistent Are you Labor an old-fashioned? The Greens Party is a party of hatred. They're not green. They don't seem to care about the environment. As the Greens are kryptonite to the federal Labor government, so the Greens will be kryptonite to the state Labor government. Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. <laughs> serious danger to Australia. Hello. Oh, this is weird. <laughs> this is me just talking to a camera in my, in my house, monologuing. About the deep state and how Q is bringing us the truth. No, it's me, Tom Ballard. It's Serious Danger, a podcast about Greens politics in Australia. Thank you very much for joining me. I am flying solo. I'll explain why in a sec. This is not an official Greens Party podcast. It is made possible with the help of the Green Institute and our producer, Michael Griff Griffin, who is listening to this, so I'm not alone. Emerald's having a little break. Her birthday's coming up. She's going to enjoy her birthday and she's going to do that. She's going to chill. And next week is obviously a massive political week. This coming week is Budget Week 2023. I know it's very exciting. We'll be going through that in detail. We've had a few announcements this week, but we thought we'd just bring you something a little bit special, a little bit of something, something, little extra treats um, this week. You will be hearing Emerald's voice. I guarantee you that. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a zombie hodgepodge episode, but it's still incredible content thank you so much to our new patrons m lloyd wendy george blake and anti Baganda. thank you so much if you go to patreon.com forward slash serious danger au uh then you can support the show no is that right is it au on patreon i actually don't remember edit this out <laughs> it is au yes okay great leave that in you can support the show uh, for as little as three bucks a month, you get bonus content and you help us keep the lights on and pay Mike and do good things. Um, we did release an episode in recent weeks with Emerald's sister. More on that in a sec. Obviously, it is, it is a pretty big news week. Next week's the big one. We'll be getting the budget on Tuesday night and the response and we just see where Greens land. We'll be getting a cool Greens guest to run through what you should and shouldn't know, who the winners and losers <laughs> of the budget are, this first budget from the Albanese Labor government. A few announcements. Parent Next is getting scrapped. That's a good thing. I think we probably all agree on that. That's good news. A dog shit announcement on job seeker support. They're going to raise the rate, but only for people over 55. We're still yet to see if that's actually the case. That was a fucking shit show. People, people are 54 living in poverty. No biggie. That's totally fine. Oh, and this government hates you. If you're a young person, this government hates you. <laughs> it's actively campaigning to make your life worse, it seems. Uh, we've had those announcements. Boost to aged care workers pay. That's good news. Thumbs up to that. Um, so, yes, more details next week. We'll run through the budget in full. You'll be listening to this in a post-coronation world. Jesus Christ. Actually, if I can be rude and plug uh, my episode of The Bugle this week, great uh, satirical podcast out of the UK with Andy Zaltzman. I was on there with Mark Steele. I think people like this show will enjoy that. And we did about 40 minutes uh, shitting on the monarchy. So if that interests you, <laughs> check out The Bugle this week. Uh, also, a devastating announcement that fracking in the NT is being given the green light thanks to the Labor Territory Government in the Beedaloo Basin. It's going to be going ahead. Um, gas production, the expansive wells across the region. Of course, the Greens campaigned uh, against this ruthlessly. The safeguard mechanism, which we did eventually agree to, uh, I guess allows for this, but fucking hell. According to Reputex Research, if full production in the area is reached, it could lead to 1.4 billion tonnes of lifestyle emissions 
over the next two decades. Seems bad. Does not seem to be listening to the science. Sounds like the climate wars are still going. Very interesting. Uh, shout out to all the climate activists worth their salts who are calling that out and campaigning against it and to the traditional owners of First Nations people who are also resisting um, that devastation of the Beedaloo Basin. No good. And I got questions and you got answers. I'm not sure if they're fact or fiction. All right, first up for this episode, we're bringing you some Q&A, uh, the wonderful program on ABC that I guest hosted and I can't get back on for some reason. <laughs> Have me on, ABC. I'll, I'll bring you some spicy content. When we were hanging out in person last week in Brisbane, Emerald and I uh, asked for a bunch of questions from you beautiful people, from our patrons, and we ran through a whole bunch of them and we got questions on everything, how political parties should or can engage young people, how to deal with labor people in real life, <laughs> whether millennials are disengaged, Extinction Rebellion, and some other fun ones about our music tastes and stuff we like in books. So we sat down and we answered a bunch of them and we're bringing you a taste of that Q&A session uh, right now. Little little warning or disclaimer, there was a few little audio technical issues. It's totally listenable and fine, but we just want to flag that. And Michael is amazing at making us sound really good. So keep that in mind. But enjoy. Here is me and Emerald aing your cues. <laughs> Van Helen 2 asks, who's the Abbott and who's the Credlin in your supervillain dynamic? What do you think that means? What's the criteria? Describe the characters. Well, Credlin was the the genius, the political genius. Well, I think I'm the Credlin. Oh. <laughs> well, because you're the famous face <laughs> and I'm the, the smart strategy. I'm not strategy though. You're all that as well. But... Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day. Tony Abbott is, is the weirdest fucking unit of all time. It is crazy that he was... He was the Prime Minister the of Prime Australia. Prime Minister of Australia. And what is he doing now? He's doing, he's doing podcasts with the IPA. Is he? Yeah. Does he do a regular podcast? Yeah. That's kind of funny. So, hmm, we're both the Abbott and... It's so funny because... Again, from the clips I see of Sky News after that, the, cra- the real crazies, Rowan Dean, Rita Panahi and stuff. So... They're all, there was a clip the other day saying Rita Panetti is happy and they're all grateful to the Teals for getting rid of the wet liberals mm. and they hate Matt Keane so much. Like these are all way too left wing. And of course, the lesson from the Victorian election and the New South Wales election is they need to get more right wing. And so they, and they obviously hate Turnbull yeah. with, with, the, with the passion. Yeah. So they're, but their dream leader, the return now is Abbott. Is Abbott. I guess Dutton sort of helps with Which that. Which just seems to be like, yeah, the Liberals are really stupid at strategy, aren't they? Because no one likes Tony Abbott. And those, yes. And you yeah. just know what happened. And all they have, I guess, is, well, he won big in 2013. Yeah. But no, like, I don't think that was him. That was not him, man. Yeah. Yeah, it, that ain't it. I did bite an onion that time. So maybe I'm the Abbott. That's true. Activist Ash says, how do we convince political parties to engage meaningfully with young people? Have policies that (laughs) will actually improve young people's lives, surely. And, well, I guess it's, okay, this is, the question is how do we convince political parties to engage meaningfully, which is a different question to how should political parties engage meaningfully, right? Mm. Um. I don't really know whether... Do, do you think political parties need to be convinced to engage meaningfully? I think that they would like to think they are trying, but they don't know how. 
I just think it still comes down to like money, right? I mean, even though millennials are now a, as big a generation as boomers, so we know that so demographically we make up the same amount. Still, majority of millennials are voting Labor. Labor can make the argument: where else are going to go? They're going to go to the Greens, but you know, yeah. for the time being, they're still winning the yeah. the youth vote. Our vote is very is significantly higher among young people. Among young people, yes, that's true, and and climbing, but. Still, even then, it's still skewed by the fact that older generations still have way more assets and money. Mm-hmm. So even though they're, you know, voting-wise in terms yeah. of numbers is a different demographic, but it's still about, you know, that that demographic's connection to the housing market, to banks, to where people put their money, to yeah. where, who they fund, you know, how much money they can put into political donations or, um, you know, or media outlets that sort of campaign in a certain way. Do you know what I mean? I guess that's a well- I think my answer to the question is that, yeah, we shouldn't necessarily convince political parties to engage meaningfully, meaningfully with young people because I just, I don't think there's really any benefit in the Liberal and Labor parties engaging with young people yeah. unless they completely change the foundation of, of what that party is and what they stand for. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the only reason that they that they ever would is if they think that there's some sort of benefit to them and to them maintaining the... The institution as it stands of the Labour or, or Liberal Party or more realistically of, you know, the corporate interests that they serve. Um, and when that's not the case, because young people are increasingly precarious when it comes to work security or housing or just wealth and, and um, income security as well, then, yeah, that's that's not the case. And so perhaps, yes, the more pertinent question is how do we make that clearer to young people as from from the Greens, from the genuinely left movement, and involve young people. And and I think that the campaigns that have been really successful, when I look at, for example, the campaigns in Brisbane, those are campaigns that are led by young people, like managed by young people, young volunteers. It is a young energy. And and I, I think it's obviously you don't want to fall too far into being like, oh, it's all just young people which need to target young people because there's also people of, of all ages, working yeah. class, that, that the Greens represent. But it's absolutely true that, like, yes, if you get out there and if you can encourage kind of like a social network that's that's built around the Greens where people are actually friends with each other and it's almost like a social activity to go out and door knock and mm. debrief afterwards, that's one of the best ways to grow the movement. Mm. Ardashin. Ardashin asks, why are the Greens so averse to Stupol? Student unionism is good, actually, but fuck ALP kids. Is there a difference between student unionism and Stupol? I thought the unions were a different thing. This just goes to show how involved I was with student politics, maybe. Well, I think at the level of university, all the student politics is based around the student union. Right. So it's so young Labor members are running for a place on the student union. Yeah. I'm learning. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I didn't know, because isn't there like a Senate of some universities as well? Oh, I don't know. But the National Union of Students, you know, that's the big yeah. national body, yes. And and then people from different universities get elected to the student unions and get representative to the national body. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with student unionism. Like, obviously, yes, if there's a genuinely representative body to represent the interests of students, yep. that, that makes sense. And getting young people involved in, in politics. But I think that's also, I'm sort of like, yeah, I, do, I still get a bit eek about the insularity of a purely like a campus-based politics that doesn't necessarily engage with the real world and like it i think it's it's just maybe also an experience that i don't connect with because i didn't have an experience of being like 
I'm at uni now and uni is my life and on campus life, yeah. this is just kind of it. It's like, well, no, I'm a member of the real world. Like I'm, I'm an adult. And yeah. so it just doesn't resonate with me. Do you think that there's any value in that? Like, Well, I think student politics is at its worst when it feels like young people who want to be adult politicians yeah. one day doing getting their practice rounds in and they're just replicating the national parliament in yeah. the in the corridors of the student unionism and the politics they're passionate about and fighting for is all based on factual infighting and yeah. about the power plays and struggles on the university campus yeah. where the stakes are very low. You would hope that the kind of radical student activism that we've seen in previous generations around the Vietnam War mm. or even the incredible response to you know, the Howard government's attacks on student unionism yeah. when people tried as best as they could to try and resist those calls and were, or, or the fight against um, uh, introducing uh, fees student debt, right? Which uh, Joe Hockey was involved with, trying to yeah. uh, fight against the introduction of uh, student fees. You know, you would hope that that is there and that that is an activism that can speak to, to broader rights as well. It seems like there are big fights within student unionism and on the campus around trans rights and mm -hmm. the role that turfism is playing yeah. in on certain campuses and the way that lays out with the tertiary union that seems to be pretty hot right now but yeah i would hope that the activism of, and student unionism of young people is qualitatively different than just becoming a little labor or a little liberal um who's just happens to be at university yeah like if it is just another path of uh left activism or political engagement like if you would to choose to if you were to choose like direct action or electoralism or unionism um, to represent the interests of, of, of workers or the environment or whatever, that yes, but as long as it kind of, it sees its place in a broader left mm. movement, not as just a mini version, like mm. a microcosm of that, yep. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Arnon Curvis says, how do I speak to Labor supporters without resentment? They seem so blind to Labor's lack of ambition. We kind of spoke about this recently, hey? Yeah, we did. I find it hard. I don't know how to answer this. I just don't talk. To, I can't. I, I personally just have always, I think, chosen to not um, foster. I don't expend uh, energy on toxic relationships. <laughs> so. But it's true. I just don't. In my social life, I'm like, why would I deal with people who have a fundamentally different uh, way of, of viewing the world unless I'm deliberately trying to engage with, mm. you know, strangers as part of a political project. But if I'm just trying to fucking relax, <laughs> why would I want to talk to a Labour member? Yeah, or just don't talk about politics with them, maybe. Talk about other stuff. Why would I want to... What am I going to talk about? That is, <laughs> this is what I mean, though. I have these conversations with people, and when people are, like, you know, in a romantic relationship in particular or right. with their close friends, and they're like, oh, we just don't talk about politics, that is fucking weird. Well, that's great. That's different. Yeah. Different in a relationship and different just at a party, trying to have a nice time at a party. At a party? But, like, what are you doing at a party? <laughs> With labor members? <laughs> well, but, but are you then going to, you know, if you're at a party, you're kind of breaking off, like, you're ha having conversations, not, you're not all sitting in a massive circle mm. talking to each other. You're talking to people that you select. Would you select to talk to the labor people or would you talk to people that you like? <laughs> I also might not know their labor people for it. I might just. See them as people. But, okay, but then, like, you might have that conversation and be like, oh, clearly our values don't align. I'm going to choose to go talk to someone that I want to talk to. But I can have interesting conversations about politics with people in the Labor Party. Mm. Even, Do you even, enjoy that? Well, 
it's fine. It's interesting. Even when it's like me asking a whole bunch of, give me the lowdown on what the weird shit that's going down in the Labor Party. Over but there. would you then go back to that to build a relationship with that person? Or would you have like a one-off interesting conversation and then you're like, great, I'm not going to invite that person out to dinner. <laughs> but it's, well, I think it's, I can have that conversation if that person respects my political beliefs and ideology and sees where I'm coming from and sort of says, look, you're in the Greens, not for me. Yeah. I'm in the Labor Party for these reasons. Yeah. We can hash that. We can have a conversation. Yeah. Like, I think that's totally fine. Yes, oh, absolutely. I would certainly treat them with respect in that regard but then like i'm not going to spend any more time on it than i absolutely have to i spend it any more time because on it. every three months <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah it's just not something that i would want to spend time on but i mean speaking to labor supporters again we talked about this recently but like challenge in a way that's productive that doesn't feel like attacking people speaking to people's disillusionment with the labor party yeah and letting them know that there are alternatives to that and letting them know that they don't have to accept that mm. and that the only way the Labor Party will ever change is if they see the shifting to the right costs on bo- votes yeah. and by growing Greens' power, uh, but the Greens' power as a, as a true political force to represent an actual, accurate, progressive vision of what this, this country can be, a, a political force that can call out Labor on its bullshit and can demand that it does better. These, these are good things. Yeah, if I'm being totally sincere, like it certainly is important i think if you come across these people to like recognize and acknowledge the distinction between ordinary labor members the vast majority of whom are actually trying to make a positive difference yep. and the structure the the institution of labor and its leadership who often have other interests yes. related to like themselves or or the maintenance of you know corporations or or getting themselves a good lobby like lobbying job after their career yep. whatever it is uh, yeah, so, so to draw those distinctions and acknowledge them when you're talking to ordinary Labor members is important, of mm. course. Yeah. Merrimindi asks, why is Emerald so hot? Great question. Mm. I have no idea who this person is. We're fast running out of time. Nuclear for Australia asks, thoughts on nuclear energy? Now, this is a regular running out of time. thing that will pop up a lot. Why is nuclear energy so hot? We don't need it. Don't need it. It's, we have no safe way to store it. Uh, and it's not... Like the t- technology isn't even developed well enough yet. That so, why would you invest money in that when you could be investing in renewables that we know work, that we know are efficient, that we know are safe? What about existing nuclear power in other countries? What about it? <laughs> what about it? Well, uh, does it? I mean, people will point to the successful examples of places right. like France, for example, as like you know, hey, well, we could have a nuclear energy industry like that one day, like that. That's, we could have a solar industry, yeah. wind industry, particularly in Australia where we have such abundant natural resources in that regard. We have lots of sun, lots of wind. Yeah. How much of an impact do you think Generation Z is making on politics right now? That's from Instas Murden. Uh, what do you think? Um, it's interesting because there are certainly some breakthrough figures that made a lot of noise, Greta Thunberg being the obvious one there. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, are there any actual, there's no, there's no rep generation Z people elected to parliament, are there? Um, there are a few of those, the kids that were in the Parkland massacre have like made some noise on gun violence, um, uh, in America, but overwhelmingly, I think we see the same story of disempowered young people who could be, who can go viral and can make great content. But when the rubber hits the road, the power is doesn't amount to very much at all. Yeah, I think that the major parties are not like that. I don't think they're having much of an influence in terms of 
policies yeah. or, yes, whether the major parties are particularly concerned just yet, uh, maybe in terms of style of like an aesthetic of campaigning, yeah. uh, I think particularly their online presence has has made an impact. But I do think, like, I, I do get the impression that, yes, the vibe of, of Zoomers is that chaotic, like, rejection of... Um, rejection of the norm mm. and there is a real what's interesting to me is like gen z will tend to go very radical one way or another and i think a lot of uh that will mean a rejection of capitalism and even like an embrace of communism particularly because they also don't have that historical uh, understanding of communism that's like based in uh the the soviet union and that kind of yes very marred historical perception of what communism is or could be. And so I think Gen Z are a lot more likely to embrace socialism and communism. Mm. But then similarly, they're a lot more like they're likely to embrace, you know, radical kind of um far right ideology and like men's rights activists. Tate, yes. And yes, and like the um grind, inspo, yes, those those kind of, of people, particularly the way they can consume media online. And it will be really interesting over the next few years as that shakes out to see what is going to be the dominant force. And like, is that the new, you know, kind of two sides of, of politics? Because mm. that's what you kind of see from Gen Z. Mm. Um, it's so wild too how our mainstream media is completely devoid of voice, like serious regular voices of people. Even, you know, some maybe older millennials now are getting pretty regular runs, but, you know, the younger millennials and Zoomers, because obviously their media is all online and the world that they engage with is YouTube, TikTok. Yeah. It's like, who is the Australian millennial, the Zoomer, that we turn to to hear from mm. to get an insight or who even wants to speak to a well, mainstream audience? You know, I said, I think, of the last episode that, like, we should just interview all my siblings. <laughs> and that was my little sister, Aviva, was like, okay, when are you going to interview me? Um, so let us know if you think that we should get Aviva, my 16-year-old sister, on to talk about <laughs> what it's like being a Zoomer. That'll make me feel so old. We're just checking it. She does you. sometimes make you feel a bit old, but... Leo? Get Leo. Leo Felicia, yes. There you Felicia, go. Yes. I said... Uh, that's probably, yeah, the the main, like, certainly in Australian <laughs> politics. <laughs> but they're not a commentator, theoretically, they're impartial. But, yes. yeah. um, let's do a couple more here. Callan Gray, who is your favourite Greens leader at either a federal or a state level and why? Oh, I think mine's Adam. Yeah. Yeah. He's the best. <laughs> and why? Uh, because I think he's the most radical in terms of economic politics. I think he's a socialist. And I think he's good at the job of being a media spokesperson yep. and even kind of internal politics. He seems to do a decent job at, mm. yeah, of the ones we've had so far. Indoors. Uh, <laughs> oh, Tom doesn't want to do the question, who's the funnier one? Interesting. Thomas Sully asks, who's the funnier one? Me. Okay. Uh, Emil Davey, how can the plebs create political change? Is direct disruptive action the best way? Uh, that's one of the best ways, yeah. but I think door knocking is the other way. Right. Uh, Extinction Rebellion just had their big thing in London, the, the big oh, one. You know, they've done this new, yeah, yeah, new yeah. like not so much for the direct action, not so much fucking stuff up way. Anyway, they had a meeting at that thing asking about the the best way forward. It's something like 80% of people said we still want to do disruptive direct action. Okay. So 
<laughs> Look, I, I don't know about, yeah, XR style mass kind of trying to get arrested. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would count that as du- direct action. I would say that like disruptive civil disobedience. Mm. But yeah, in terms of direct action, like blocking a, a coal train, mm. I do think that's also a very important way. Well, also strikes, even though it's strikes. as complicated as strikes are and how yeah. you could be fined a million billion dollars and be yeah. sent to prison. But uh, yeah, I mean- in terms of the climate crisis, you, you just have to assume that all that action is going to escalate. It has to. Yes. Yeah. Finally, vote B, Finally. vote B underscore low the line wants to know, I'd love some book recommendations. Not Tom's book. I've already read it, lol. Um, book recommendations. I think I mentioned this maybe on the podcast a few episodes ago. I really enjoyed, it was called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat. Oh, yes. That was that they went through a bunch of, you know, emerging technologies and where they're actually up to and an interesting, it helped put into perspective for me that balance between what is Silicon Valley hype mm. about fake meat or, you know, automated death machines for um, assisted dying and that sort of thing and how far away we are from what might be represented by those industries. But at the same time, we're kind of close to a lot of things that we kind of don't realize already exist. Mm. Uh, and it's just it was just really interesting to read about, yeah, what what already exists and and that that gap between when you hear but you see the promo materials and then the the author will actually go and visit these factories, for example, and be like, this is not what you said it was. Is right. it, you know, is that by you? Can't remember, but if you, you know, I'm sure if you look up sex robots and vegan meat, it's a pretty good title. Yeah, again, there. Um, one of the best political books I've ever read is Owen Jones' The Establishment. It's all very much about the UK, but I think is still just a fucking great read about how insane uh, the UK is when it comes to class society and this establishment. And a lot of it you can immediately draw parallels to Australian society. So I'd recommend having a read of that. Paddy Manning's Inside the Greens is on my bookshelf. We were th- considering maybe like we'd read it through that progressively for Adrian Epps. Still not read it, no. Okay. But uh, it's very thick, very big. So I'll work on that. All right. Finally, Mitchell asks, I've seen Emerald wear a obituary sweater one episode, so I was wondering what type of music you'll listen to and if either of you play an instrument or anything. Or is being funny your only talent? <laughs> Fucking owned. Says lol jokes. <laughs> my obituary shirt, yes. My comfy obituary long sleeve. What kind of music do obituary do? Obituary is like a death metal oh. band. The death metal? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I feel like people, I, I guess maybe I forget that people don't necessarily know. I like <laughs> that stuff. But I also. Sometimes I forget people are not okay with my work. <laughs> yes, people aren't familiar. I used to be in a band. Don't know if you guys know. Uh, class War. Class War, a hardcore band. But I like that. But I also, I listen to a lot of pop and pop country I also I'm invested in Tato. I'm very invested in Taylor Swift. I'm a big, big Taylor Swift fan. I, but what's the band that I've been listening to recently? Oh, the New Balance and Composure songs, good pop punk mm-hmm. I've been listening to recently. And also my friend's band from the States, Military Gun, put out a new album or are putting out a new album. They've done a couple of singles recently. Uh, it's called Life Under the Gun. There's a song on that record called Very High, which I think is really good. Military Gun, spelt M-I-L-I-T-A-R-I-E. Ooh. Are you friends with the Cub Sport people? Do you know you Cub Sport? Friends, no. Prison Bad? Yeah, yeah I right. do, but no. Their new album, Jesus at the Gay Bar, is fucking awesome. And they are queer as fuck and they're putting out the queerness everywhere and I really love that. Particularly in the current context in which all gay people are groomers. The fact <laughs> that they're just so joyously good. gay and out there and that's really good. Yeah. 
Ben Folds is putting out a new album. And the one song from the new one, I love Ben Folds. He's my favorite. I know. But one song from the new album is good. And the other one's this song called uh, Exhausting Lover. And I still can't tell if I hate it or not. But Do people um, like it. For people who like metal and, and hardcore and stuff, just strongly recommend go back and listen to that Marauder record, the the classic one, the Marauder record that has like Life is Pain on it. You guys will know what I'm talking about. I was listening to it on the bus the other day. <laughs> Do yourself a favor. Go listen to Marauder. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Very insightful and funny, guys. Well done. If you want to hear more of that, then you can sign up to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash SeriousStageAU. We recorded a bunch more answers to those questions courtesy of our beautiful patrons. That's coming in your feed in this next week. Speaking of Patreon content, we also wanted to bring you a highlight from our discussion with Georgina Hines. She's a humanitarian lawyer at the International Committee of the Red Cross. She's currently the legal advisor for new technologies of warfare. And yes, she's Emerald Moon's sister. Uh, she was such a delight. This was such a cool conversation. Obviously, AI constantly in the news and this extra wrinkle in that conversation about <laughs> killer robots and this kind of amazing technology being used to kill people was all very interesting and juicy. It was such a great chat with Georgina. And we really thought we wanted to bring you more of it here on the free feed and uh, for your own education and entertainment. But also if it inspires you to sign up as a patron, then that's also cool. Totally up to you. Um, we talked about lots of stuff with Georgina, but uh, what you're about to hear is our discussion on Elon Musk, his recent calls for a moratorium on AI and all the ethical questions that are raised when we start letting robots and machines make their own decisions. Enjoy. The popular conception from science fiction, you know, from Ultron, Avengers, or whatever, that these are sentient Skynet beings with feelings. Sitting there falling <laughs> in love with you and everyone else yes, in the universe and indeed. breaking your heart. <laughs> and and, and yeah. that is, I think, where the hype stuff comes in. So the coverage of a lot of this has been totally. often quite gushing, and there have been <clears throat> stories about people falling in love or having a conversation with ChatGPT, and the ChatGPT falls in love with the author and is trying yeah. to get them to leave their wife and all that kind of nonsense. It's all quite funny and silly and entertaining. But the yeah, the silicon hype of like this is the biggest issue facing human mm. beings right now is the fact that we have these uh, machines creating or some serious interventions saying these things need rights and we need to think about how <laughs> yeah. these, the, the AI robots need you know their rights protected in the future. Little that all rights. seems a little bit uh, like it's got a bit of mayo on it to me. Yeah, well, because it's interesting because I don't know if you saw, but um, the other recent thing that happened was a bunch of industry leaders, including our favorite Elon Musk, came out mm. with a call to put a moratorium on AI for six months on the development of larger, you know, language models and things like this. And and the letter kind of just indicated focus on exploding rockets. We've just got to focus our yeah. energy on <laughs> yeah. blowing up robots in the sky. Exactly. Let's go That's where the money fashion. is, people. Um, <laughs> No, but they, they were sort of indicating that we need to stop this because it's too intelligent, you know, it's too mm. scary. But actually um, some other people, including a, a UNSW academic, didn't sign the letter and they said, you know, the problem is not that it's too intelligent, it's that it's a bit too stupid. Yeah. And so it makes these mistakes that we just wouldn't. Um, yeah. 
because the, the other thing with the Capture example is it actually, when it was searching, found this other company called Capture 2 that specializes in getting around captures. So, why it went to hi- hire a task rabbit when, like, mm. most people, you know, get those for hiring errands and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it makes these odd mistakes that we can't really foresee because it doesn't think like us. And I think there's a danger in kind of anthropomorphizing them and even when they mm. start talking about hallucinations when um, – Really, all it's doing is it's making mistakes, but it's right. it's this phenomenon where um, it can kind of state categorically something that's blatantly untrue. So, these researchers in in another case got it to say that churros, like you know the fried mm-hmm. delicious donut things, would make excellent surgical tools because of their um, flexibility and uh, plasticity. <laughs> so, you know, and it was adamant that this was backed well, up by a scientific study. It almost study, feels so. cruel, doesn't it? It's like, yeah. why are you tricking the robot? Come <laughs> on, it's so stupid. Have you, have you heard about uh, when I was like reading a little bit about this, I read about the Waluigi effect? Oh, I haven't heard this one. Tell me. They they call, that's what they refer to like a similar method where, or the potential for someone to trick AI into doing very bad things because they're like basically it can learn a code mm. of, you know, ethics. It can learn a bunch of things that are right. Um, mm. You can sort of teach it that, but it doesn't, inst- like it's very easy to literally flick a switch between you should do things that are right or you should not. Uh, and not do things that are wrong or you should do things that are wrong. So it's like it almost makes it easier to um, hijack AI or for AI to go very wrong or to be misused uh. the more you teach it about a code of ethics. Uh. Uh, I think like yeah, the Waluigi effect is is used to a- apply or like originates from a bit of a broader concept, but like specifically that's how it kind of is used when you're talking mm. about AI. Yeah, we're seeing that with like self-driving cars, right? Program- programming mm. in a code to make moral choices in the, in when an accident approaches, you know, like yeah, what, what the car would do if it's self-driving, you know, to save which life and identify which life and do the people in the car's lives matter more than the pedestrians and all these kind of questions. And, again, I'm not an expert in this at all, but it seems to be a fucking disaster or at least it is, it is yeah. certainly not progressing the way we're told it, it would be. And there's a pretty strong argument to say, hey, maybe just don't outsource those decisions to to robots. Maybe that is an area in which people's moral judgment is good. Yeah, know. particularly where people could maybe get killed, which I guess, Georgia, you might uh, have some <laughs> I have some on. things to say on that. <laughs> I do yeah. have some things. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the ethical conundrum that Tom's talking about, this famous, like, trolley argument it's not new like they've had this for a while where if you had to divert you know this trolley car would you hit this old lady or would you hit the young child and um but yeah like having to to program in i mean that's that's one ethical concern um i don't know if you want to talk about killer robots now which of course i can't call killer well, robots. yeah like weapons. i'm ready ready whenever but i you're talking <laughs> about like military decision making and that seems to yeah. be one of the main areas that uh, AI is being used or will be used in the future. Yeah, so there's a there's a bunch of different ways that AI is already used in military contexts, and one of them is around AI and decision support systems. So this is more around mm. like predictive analysis and intelligence um, collection and analysis. So it's kind of boosting current, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance tools. Um, But it has actually a a really wide range of implementation 
there. So you're kind of like assessing patterns of life and behaviors to make recommendations or predictions. And it can be around targeting um, or, or it can be, you know, something about who's detained, for instance, in, mm, uh, in a conflict. Um, it can be about military tactics more generally. There yeah. are concerns around um, potentially it influencing decisions on the use or the command and control of nuclear weapon systems, which is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I mean, another area that's a little bit more specific than that is this one around autonomous weapon systems. And they are they don't have an international definition, which makes it hard, but we've kind of, the ICRC has put forward a definition and it's been taken up by a fair few states, which is basically uh, weapons that once they're activated or launched, it's the weapon system that selects and applies force to the target. So it mm-hmm. is choosing the target essentially, although I should say algorithms don't make decisions, but it's selecting the target based on a generalized target profile or a category mm-hmm. of things that it's been given. Um, and I think, you know, there are some really, definitely some really serious ethical concerns with the use of these weapons, particularly to target humans. Mm. Um, and it, it just comes down to, uh, it sounds simple, but it, I mean, it's fundamental. Should an algorithm, should a machine be making human life or death decisions and you know, we've asked a bunch of ethicists and they say no and, and it's kind of that simple. You remove it removes yeah, yeah. ethicists, you know, like they're fucking oh, party poopers and they're always like blah 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 and it's OHS PC gone mad, I'd say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um yeah that that's definitely the argument that comes back sometimes for sure. <laughs> Is it just guys wanting to be like, but it's cool. This would be fucking sick, man. Exactly. And you're gonna die anyway. So does it really matter how? <laughs> oh wow. Um, yeah okay. Yeah, so there's that. But I, I think, you know, it's a bit easier sometimes to pin it on the legal arguments and there are many because IHL or, or law, this law of armed conflict, you know, it has these tests that require human judgment. It comes back to what Tom was saying about they actually call for the exercise of values assessments. For instance, when you have to um, weigh up whether an attack is proportionate or whether you will cause excessive collateral damage as opposed to your military advantage that you'll gain, you have to assess all those things. You have to assess, uh, you know, what is the incidental harm? Is that excessive when you weigh it up against your military advantage? And how you code military advantage when it's actually a really values-based assessment and, and you can't just weigh that against collateral damage. Like they're not the same thing. I remember an Australian um, military person once said, it's like weighing up possums and oranges. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not something you can code in easily uh, and it, it's kind of an obligation of process. It's not just about the result. It's about mm-hmm. actually turning your mind to it and applying in good faith human judgment. So, yeah. you know, I think it's, there it's are very real. It's like, yes, we've, we've ruined the country. We've invaded and ruined the country, <laughs> but we did yeah. get the oil, you know, and whether a robot would be able to sort of factor in all those kind of different inputs. And so long as be- you sit, you, you know, you work through that and you yeah. get you, there's a requirement for a human to, you know, feel guilty and terrible about it and go through yeah. the trauma and probably carry that home and then yeah. it's okay. Yeah, then it's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, the guilt is, is another issue because, okay, I mean, I'm neutral and impartial and independent mm-hmm. as the Red Cross, so I can't comment on any of those things you just said. But um, <laughs> the guilt aspect is another one because on the flip side, if slash when things do go wrong, 
yeah. where's the responsibility and accountability? And yeah. it's all very well to say, uh, oh, well, we've got, you know, a military chain of command. So it's just the commander who authorized it. But actually, when you look at war crimes, they usually require intention, like most criminal systems actually require mm-hmm. this mens rea intention requirement. And if you have an unpredictable autonomous weapon system that does something like we've been talking about with AI that's completely outside the, you know, foreseen parameters, then you're going to really struggle to meet that intention requirement. And then other people have said, oh, well, we'll just go back to the programmer as if there's one programmer sitting in a hoodie in a dark room tapping out (laughs) the lines of code for this weapon system. But I mean, these things are super complex and they have, you know, multiple systems of systems. There's sometimes you can have swarms of them where they're all interacting together. And so it's really naive to think that there's one programmer that you can trace it back to, that they had any concept of how this weapon system would necessarily be used in that specific circumstance, or even that they understand it. Because the other problem with AI is it's got this, what they call a black box effect in some systems where you know, it will produce X result 99% of the time. And so most people say, well, that's fine. But no one knows why it's doing it. Like even mm. the programmer can't reverse engineer that decision to pinpoint yeah. the line of code that told the system to do that. So, yeah. you know, you, you really lack something there in the traceability to be able to enforce any sort of criminal responsibility and accountability. Is there an argument like, for kind of taking that decision-making out of the hands of people in order to like relieve humans of that, that guilt and like the, you know, Mm. I guess the, the trauma that comes with having to make those decisions in an armed conflict situation. So I haven't so much heard that one. Um, What I have heard a lot is, well, humans make terrible decisions and, you know, I wouldn't (laughs) want a tired and angry and, you know, vengeful soldier making the decision, I'd rather outsource it to a clean clinical machine algorithm process. So that is often used. Now, (laughs) I have views on that argument. Tired Reed has a soul in brackets too. So so there might, you know, sometimes human beings make the right decision, which might be go against military command, but might not involve, uh, yeah, committing a war crime. But uh, that does get annoying. So, yeah, we should outsource that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, you know, it's pretty uh, it's pretty sad if we sort of assume that all human decisions, even in war, are um, poor decisions because I actually don't think that's mm-hmm. the case. Um, and, you know, so I think that's kind of the starting point. But also you're just not comparing the same thing. You know, the machine is not actually making a decision. No. It is following a process. Um, it's following and orders. It is, it's yes. following. I mean, it's it following commands. Just following yeah. Well, it is, but it's it's doing so. You know, as I said, in a way that doesn't recognise context. So, in an armed conflict, for instance, you know, there's also arguments around. Well, it doesn't have the ability to exercise compassion. For instance, there might be instances where mm-hmm. you exercise restraint, uh, and and that is not programmed into the algorithm. Mm. So you do lose a level of of humanity, but. At the end of the day, you know, it's still, it's not making a judgment call. It is not recognizing context. And it's really going to struggle to recognize things like surrendering uh, soldiers who are protected or wounded and sick, which, you know, these are super context dependent assessments that really rely on intention mm. um, and, you know, these very human aspects. Uh, so, yeah, look, I mean, 
it's the argument that's made most often, I would say, and that and, and that they'll mm-hmm. sort of increase precision and, and be more accurate, but, but yeah. All right, baby, that's the show. God, this is so much easier. <laughs> I don't have to record anything, and bloody Emerald's not here. Uh, no, happy birthday, Emerald. We love and miss you. We hope you enjoy your good break. And thanks for answering those questions with me. And thanks to Georgina Hines for joining us on the show. Thanks to the whole Moon family. Uh, this week's call to action. Obviously, there'll be a lot of um, discussion, debate, and organizing around the response to the budget. We'll see just how shit it is. Apparently, a surplus is on the way. Thank God. Um, that'll mean a lot to the people living in poverty that there's a surplus there and we can pay down some debt. Uh, But the action from the Greens' point of view is still focused around housing. This housing bill is still under the pump, a lot of pressure being heaped on Max Chandler-Mather to support this bill, to cave, to get it through, because this is apparently the best we can do. There was a deal reached this week from Jackie Lambie Network um, getting a guarantee for 1,200 social and affordable homes in every state and territory as part of the housing bill. Now, they're, they're saying that's a win. There we go. All right, it's all good. Green should wave it through. This is the best that we can do when it comes to addressing the housing crisis. Uh, as Bax Chandler-Mather put it on Twitter, this is basically <laughs> negotiating down the guarantee of 30,000 homes under the Housing Future Fund. Um, so really, they only are only committed to supplying 9,000 regardless of the returns on the Housing Future Fund, regardless of what the stock market does. So from Max's point of view, it's like, this is a terrible deal from Jackie Lambie. And also Jackie Lambie should join the fight for the Greens to get more guarantees, right? If, if you believe in direct investment of public money into housing to address the housing crisis, to address the 640,000 shortfall in social and, and public housing in this country, you should absolutely be fighting for more. You should not be putting out videos and pressuring the Greens to get it through and swallowing the government's line that if this doesn't get up, we get nothing. That's bullshit. Don't play their game. Tammy and Jackie. Anyway, there is still a whole bunch of actions out there, door knocks, data parties uh, across the country through the Greens. And if you go to the Greens events page on the federal page, you'll see a whole bunch of people, amazing work happening over in WA. This is people door knocking, people calling around, talking to their fellow citizens and asking them what they think needs to be done about housing and whether they think the Labor's uh, big plan is ambitious enough or not. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the events page. You can always go there to see cool event stuff that's happening. But yeah, WA, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, lots of actions uh, in this weekend of action. Again, ramping up the pressure on the Labor government to do better, to actually do something to address the housing crisis. Hey, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review. That really helps us. We'd appreciate that. Or wherever you're listening, uh, you can support the show on Patreon, as I mentioned, or follow us at Serious Danger AU. We're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Go to SeriousDangerPod.com for all your Serious Danger needs. And email us anytime you like. Hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. Uh, I'll catch you next week. We'll, chat, we'll have a big old bit budget chat. Thank you, Michael the Griff Griffin. <laughs> I'm going to end my monologue now. This is a serious danger, Australia.